The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 51 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not that my president or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So it was, a, uh, it was a great week last week. It was a great week uh, and a great way to celebrate our one-year anniversary here. And it was also our 50th episode of Task Force 7 Radio with Sammy Sagery. And he's the author of the new book, Engineering Trustworthy Systems, Get Cybersecurity Design Right the First Time. Um, I've never asked a guest such a wide variety of questions. I mean, I asked them just about everything about everything in cybersecurity. Usually we stick to a, a certain domain and that person's subject matter expertise, but Sammy could speak to everything. Um, you know, we talked a little bit before the show, and he told me, hey, look, you can ask me anything you want, uh, and I did. <laughs> I basically, I, I took him up on that, and it was a great episode to listen to Sammy and learn a lot about the cybersecurity space in general. If you just want to learn about cybersecurity and what it's all about and listen to different topics and um, and just kind of skip around a little bit. It was just an overall great conversation on cybersecurity. So you can listen to it anytime on playback, Wherever you are in the world, folks, if you're looking for a broad conversation on cybersecurity that touches a variety of different topics from someone who's literally been in the business for decades and routinely interacts with some of the most brightest minds in cybersecurity, by the way, I mean, he, he, he hobnobs with the, 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 the elite in cybersecurity, I can tell you that. I, w- I would definitely recommend you find your favorite playback meeting and check out my interview with Sammy. All right, that's Sammy Sagery, founder of the Cyber Defense Agency on last week's episode. That's episode number 50 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 episodes on playback. Well, I know you're going to be shocked about this, but I'm going to hook you up with an answer. You can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 Radio fixed. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out, TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. Thanks so much for doing that. So, I would like to get into our topic of conversation this evening. We're going to be talking about what may possibly be the most difficult challenge for cybersecurity executives to overcome, and that is how incredibly hard it is to find good talent. Now, let me tell you, folks, this is a big problem. I see some people on social media saying, hey, there's no talent crisis out there. I can find talent all over the place. I beg to differ. Okay, this is a really big problem, especially in the, in the engineering space, uh, in the analyst space. And to help us understand how difficult this challenge is, we're going to have Matt Comins on, 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 on with us tonight. Now, Matt is one of the most successful cybersecurity executive recruiters in the world. Matt deals with executives. Uh, he deals with high-profile folks. He is currently a managing partner 
at Caldwell Partners, working out of the firm's Stanford office. He's, he's focused on recruiting chief information security officers, <clears throat> excuse me, and skip level top lieutenants in information security for large global corporations and fast growing private companies, as well as cybersecurity consultants for leading professional service firms and top executives for cybersecurity technology companies. Now, <clears throat> Matt, he's a doer, okay? He previously co-led Russell Reynolds Associates Global Cybersecurity Practice. He's got tons of experience. Prior to joining the executive search industry, he serves as a CEO of Pacific Epic. It's a, comp- it's a consulting firm that specializes in market intelligence and research for U.S.-based companies seeking to invest in and expand into China until the completion of the firm's sale. So prior to that, he was a founding partner of Black Ink Ventures, a strategic advisory firm providing clients in the digital media sector with leading outsourced solutions for business sales and corporate development. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit with him because this shows that, you know, obviously he has a variety of different skills. His, his toolbox is, is very broad, and I'm, I'm sure that helps him tremendously. I mean, even before launching Black Ink Ventures in 2004, Matt worked with CNET Networks Incorporated for nearly seven years. So, uh, he's, he's done it. He's done it all. He's got a BA in political science from Bucknell university. He speaks Mandarin. He's an all around super smart guy. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the best talent executives in the world, Matt Comins. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, George. Glad to be here. Hey, we're glad to have you. So what made you decide to become a recruiter with all that experience and all that different background in these, you know, different sectors? Uh, great question. And, uh, like many, uh, experienced recruiters, um, I had no experience going into it, as you, you pointed out uh, um, with the intro. I, uh, I was flipped, so to speak, uh, by Russell Reynolds. Uh, I had done, I just sold a business um, and I was looking for something new to do. Uh, I had done an interview, a general interview uh, with Russell Reynolds at the time. And at the end of it, I said, well, do you have any, you know, clients out there who might need a guy like me? And they said, uh, not right now, but how'd you like to come work for us? So uh, many people who know me uh, from my life um, immediately thought it was a good idea when I told them. And uh, I did, too. And I was lucky enough to uh, join Russell Reynolds back in uh, 2011. Do you think that's how it happens with a lot of recruiters? Or do you think that, uh, you know, they have a lot of you know, maybe you have a lot of experience in other space and then this recruiting firm comes along and say, hey, we think that you'd be a great recruiter or, or they actually have it in mind from the beginning and that's sort of their, their career path. It's, um, I, I would say it's more common than not. Um, there's, uh, there's not that many people, I think, uh, as a percentage of people who get into the industry who immediately, you know, come out of school and say, gosh, I want to be a recruiter. Um, I think it's great to go and get experience and live in the shoes of your clients and understand what it means to be in-house and operating a business and uh, or nonprofit or whatever that may be. Uh, it, it, it's very helpful it, it experience and to go out and, and live in the world um, and then come into it later on when you're a little bit more mature, a little more savvy. I think if you look at the the top executive recruiting firms in the world um, more and more are seeking uh, strategic people uh, with particular expertise in an industry uh, or a sec, you know, or a functional area of expertise um, so that they can bring all that learning uh, with them uh, to become a recruiter. Uh, That being said, I do think there's a, a, a special sauce, so to speak, uh, for good recruiters. I, I, I think it can be learned, um, but it, it's hard. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's harder than it looks, I think, on the outside. Um, there are certain people who just seem to do better, you know, with, right. with recruiters. Right. Well, how, how did you end up specializing in cybersecurity? How'd that come about? Um, again, it was... Uh, as somewhat by accident, uh, I was brought into the firm, uh, into the technology group and the digital transformation group. Um, and I was working with internet startups. I was working with Fortune 500 companies who were looking to do digital transformations. I was also working with the IT group, um, you know, the CIO practice, uh, CIOs, uh, CIOs and CTOs, um, 
as well as chief product officers. Uh, and as luck would have it, um, one of the first searches that they gave me was a chief information security officer search uh, for Thomson Reuters. Uh, and I sort of stumbled into it and immediately took a, took a liking to it. So, you know, the cybersecurity space is obviously very hot, um, you know, and there's a lot of firms popping up all over the place who claim to specialize in placing cybersecurity talent. What do you think about this? What do you think about these firms that are popping up all over the place? Well, I think it's uh, indicative of the market. Uh, when I started in 2011 and did that first chief information security officer search, um, you know, Russell Reynolds is a big company. It's, it's one of the top uh, recruiting firms in the world doing, you know, over 5,000 uh, searches a year around the world, just in every category. Um, but that year we had only done three searches uh, that were cybersecurity in nature. And my last year, uh, 2016 with Russell Reynolds, we did 53 searches. So uh, you can see the hockey stick growth even from my own experience. And um, it, you know, the market just exploded. So when, when you have that kind of a hot market, you, you get lots of people chasing it. So it makes a lot of sense. So, there's people trying to jump in to be cybersecurity recruiters all over the place. It makes sense. You know, the demand is there. Um, but what kind of skills does someone need to be a successful cybersecurity recruiter? Not just a, not just a successful recruiter, right? But a successful yeah. cybersecurity recruiter. Great question. I, I think like anything you have to have experience and years under your belt. Um, you, you can't, you, first and foremost, you need to be a good recruiter. You need to know how to attract people, you know, to the job. You need to know how to work with your clients. Um, but I found more and more my clients, especially in a category like this, are looking for specialization. And the only way you can really get that is to live in it uh, for a while. I think back to um, way back when, um, uh, we're coming up on the fifth anniversary of the Target brief. Beach. Uh, and I remember I was in the market for about two and a half years uh, before that. Um, so when, when that breach hit, I actually got a call from Target and it said, look, we'd like um, you to be in the consideration set of people we work with to hire a new leader. And um, I made it to the finals. And in the end, they went with a, a different uh, boutique specialist uh, recruiting firm. And I thought to myself, um, that's unfortunate for me, but I think they made the right choice. At the time, I only had two and a half years of experience, you know, living in the cyber world. I hadn't done, you know, enough uh, or as much as my competition at the time who got the search. Um, but, you know, fast forward seven years later, and I very much have, you know, I, I thought I knew a lot two years in, realized, you know, like everybody several yeah. years later. You, you know a lot more and you got to live in it. Yeah. So this brings me to my next question. In a couple episodes, we were talking about Robert Villanueva as a former secret service agent. He came on the show and I was talking about a sense of purpose, you know, how people live their lives and manage their careers with a sense of purpose. And you have a really important job and, and uh, it, it, it's <laughs> what you do makes an impact on a lot of different organizations. I mean, do you feel that sense of purpose when you, when you, when you do this job? I mean, what's it like to be a cybersecurity recruiter for some of the biggest firms in the world? Um, absolutely is the answer. Uh, so I am motivated by two things. You know, I, I think like many people, you want to have meaning in what you do. Um, but I am a look around the corner guy. So I tend to sniff out new markets and developing areas, I think, before other people. Um, so it's clearly cybersecurity hits on all those spots. Um, but it, no doubt about it, it uh, I, there's an extra hop in my step uh, every day when I do my job, knowing that it's, it's doing some good overall for the market. And, uh, and it's rewarding to work with people who are primarily um, mission-driven. I mean, almost all of my candidates got, got into this way before uh, the market was hot. So their sense of purpose, I feel every day. You know, it's interesting because I think people are going to listen to this, this interview with you, and I think they're going to listen to you speak, and they're going to be inspired and at least, at least curious 
about the cybersecurity recruitment world and, and becoming an executive recruiter, this could be a very lucrative business, right? I mean, is there, is there more room for cybersecurity recruiters in the marketplace right now? There, there really is. I, I encourage, you know, people to get into it because uh, it's really needed, as you point out. Um, so if you, you think back, uh, you know, almost five years ago when the unfortunate target retail breach happened, um, clearly cybersecurity was going on before that. But that was really what lit the fuse uh, on the explosion of demand that we've seen all across industries, all across the world. So um, you just, there's, you know, the first step for a lot of companies was hiring a CISO or a head of information security. But you can imagine after that, you're building out teams, right? You're building out teams. I've seen, uh, I just talked to one client in the consumer space who has a team of 30 globally who just got approval to go to 200. Okay. Um, I can count you know, case study after case study of situations like that. So there's clearly a need uh, for partners on the, on the recruiting side to work with companies to fill those gaps. Yeah, I would say though, I mean, when you do, and I, okay, so there's not even hundreds, but thousands, thousands of jobs, you're right, that are empty right now that help, you know, put people in butts and seats and everything. But when you get to, when you're talking about your level, you know, your yeah. level of recruitment, these top executives in the world that you're putting, these are the top information security executives and some of the biggest fortune 500 companies around. It's not easy to get to where you are. I think, I think it's, it's you know, there's only a handful of people, uh, at least in my opinion, that can do what you do. Well, I appreciate that. I, again, I think you've got, you've got to know the subject matter. You got, you have to have seen and talked to lots of different clients, uh, across many industries, what are their issues? You know, what, what are their concerns? Where are they? Are they just starting a program? Did they just have a breach? Did they, um, you know, uh, are they just up-leveling? You see that a lot. I would say the vast majority of my situations are up-leveling. So unless you've worked with many, many clients and unless you know the candidate pool, right? It's hard. Uh, there's a very limited candidate pool at this, at this uh, level. Uh, and then to find the ones, you know, at the right time in their career for a move to go to a certain geography and at the right price, it's very hard. If you don't live in this world day to day, then you're, you're going to have a lot of challenges and you're not going to be able to be a good partner to your client. Matt, do you think there's a cybersecurity talent crisis out there right now? I definitely do. Um, there's, you know, we, even when companies get behind it and put the budget to go higher, uh, everybody's doing it all at the same time, putting incredible pressure on the human capital pool. And um, I see universities, I see lots of places uh, training people, uh, getting educated in this topic. I see people pivoting, which I highly recommend. Uh, their careers may be out of IT or out of risk or somewhere else and then coming over to cyber. But no matter how much uh, of that is going on, it can't keep pace with the current demand. So Matt, we got to take a little time to go to commercial break, but we'll be right back to unpack this cybersecurity talent problem in just a few minutes. So hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications. Please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number seven, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the managing partner of Caldwell Partners, Matt Comins. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, one of the most sought-after executive cybersecurity recruiters in the world and the managing partner of Caldwell Partners, Matt Coleman. So Matt, and I want to I talk about the history a little bit of, of the cybersecurity market, but I don't want to go back too far. I just want to talk about the last maybe yep. three to five years. How, how has this market evolved since you've been recruiting in cyber? Well, uh, great question, uh, George. The, um, I would say the biggest difference I've seen, uh, you know, after the initial rush uh, into the market is everybody's a little better educated now. And, and by that, I mean the client side, the companies, uh, as well as the boards, as we've come to learn, um, and the candidate pool. Uh, when you have something come on the scene so strong, so fast, uh, there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of confusion. And everybody's trying to figure it out. Uh, so a big part of my job, I feel, is educator, which is why I so appreciate your radio show and, and, uh, and an opportunity in a platform like this. Because I work with the companies and I try to explain to them what's going on in the market. I work with the market and the candidates. I try to explain to them how my clients are thinking about it or where they are in the evolution of information security and, and, and thinking about that and budgeting for it. Um, so I, I got to say, it's still pretty chaotic because demand so far outweighs supply as we continue the build out, which I think is going to be going on for quite some time. Um, but we're better. We're better than we were in 2013 or 14. Uh, the last couple of years in particular, everybody's talked to some experts. They've, they've, they've gotten lots of advice. They've maybe even had uh, a CISO or two. Um, and frankly, the candidate pool is better educated too. Um, there was so much demand. They were saying, well, what's my value in the market? You know, what's the right job? Um, it was very confusing. So I think everybody, it's a little bit more calm uh, despite the demand. Um, everybody has a little bit better understanding, but we still aren't where we need to be 
um, you know, which I think will take several years uh, more of development. So I'm going to ask the question that everybody wants to hear, right? Everybody wants to hear the answer to exactly what are companies currently looking for? You know, what, you know, what can they do? Uh, these, these people searching for jobs. What are companies looking for uh, in a cybersecurity executive? Uh, another great question. The, um, I think the simplest answer is a great risk manager. And they come to, you have to, of course, have the right experience. You have to understand cybersecurity and what's going on inside that world. Um, but at the end of the day, this is such a huge risk issue for companies. It's probably made it into the top two or three uh, risks, in some cases, top one risk for most companies. Yep. So they're talking about it at the board level. They're talking about it at the C-level. Um, so people who can put cyber risk into real business terms, that's the biggest demand. So what are some of the things that go wrong in these searches? I mean, I know these searches aren't perfect, right? And I've, you know, I've, I've, I've been through this experience myself, uh, you know, a few times. Um, and, you know, sometimes things go wrong. <laughs> and so why does that happen? Well, um, Recruiting in general goes wrong more than we all want it to. But I think, especially when you have the dynamics of this type of market, where it's relatively new, demand far outweighs supply, um, when you have that kind of pressure on a process, and if you don't run the process perfectly, uh, you have problems. You know, is that company really, do they really know what they want? Uh, do they really understand what it means to have a top executive to budget properly for it? You know, are the candidates that they want available right now for a move? Do they cost the right amount? Will they move to that location? Relocation is a big issue. Um, you know, and these take a while. It's a big considered purchase for, for a company. So, uh, you often see three, four, five, six months, maybe longer. I've seen companies search for a year uh, to find the top uh, right candidate for information security. You know, I have a question. You know, what, why, why do companies seem to start an executive search process not knowing exactly what they want, but it seems like they're interviewing the candidates to determine what exactly they need. And then they go, okay, we interviewed a slate of candidates. Now we're going to go... And we're going to, you know, we're going to redo the, the job requisition. We're going to rewrite it and we're going to repost it as, you know, as, as something else really. And then that whole slate is really gone and they start with another slate. Um, is that really fair to these executives that are out there spending their time interviewing with these companies? I know it's part of the process and I get it. And it's, you know, it seems like part of the deal, but at some point, I mean, that, that I think that has to stop. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, it's hard, right? Unfortunately, that's the world we live in. And a lot of companies, because they aren't as uh, mature in their process or their program on information security, they like to, as you put it, feel their way, right? And how do you feel your way? You interview a lot of different types. You, you almost use them as consultants um, to tell you, you know, what their experience is, what they think of your situation how they might approach it. Um, and they start to meet people and they get a feel for who and what they want. Um, I do my darndest uh, to educate companies who are less mature uh, on the front end. Uh, and I say, hey, here's the market. Here's what's going on. Here's what you're likely going to see. I can help you shortcut the process you know, by bringing you the people I think you need. Um, and I can do that and I try and, and my clients are wonderful and they, and they work with me, usually listen to me. Uh, but at the same time, um, it just takes, it takes them a little bit. They like to see a variety of different approaches and people and, and then make a decision. Um, so unfortunately, that's still the world we live in. I think five years from now, it, it will be a lot better, just like it's a lot better today than it was five years ago. Right, right. So how has compensation changed over this time? I mean, the market's changing around the world. I, I mean, I, I, I see it, 
in some positions, it feels like people are doing the same jobs in different cities with drastically different pay and compensation uh, structures. I mean, what do you think about it? Exactly. I think anytime in pure capitalism, right? Anytime demand outweighs supply like this, uh, you're going to have a spike in compensation. Um, so, uh, no doubt about it. As it has risen up the ladder into boardrooms, they've repriced uh, the cost of a top information security executive. Um, so I think it was mispriced before, and now it is, it's getting properly priced into the market. Um, it used to be for a lot of companies, uh, not the early movers, but for a lot of companies, this was sort of a lower level uh, position in IT. It was more tactical, less strategic. And now it's been repositioned entirely uh, to be a very senior risk manager, you know, C-level executive. Uh, so the job has changed and, you know, and combined with the demand outweighing supply, it's really spiked the prices. So you mentioned boards and we talk a lot about, you know, the boards on different Fortune 500 companies and how they need to know uh, about the cybersecurity risk and understand it. And, you know, no one wants to go in and pound these, these boards with, you know, doom and gloom all the time. To, you know, people think you're just trying to, you know, accelerate your budget and, and, and do things maybe that aren't needed. But when we talk about the boards, do you see it to be almost a requirement in a Fortune 500 company that for them to have at least one member who is a cybersecurity expert, and I kind of pause to say, you know, I, I hesitate to say cybersecurity expert, but at least someone who has a cybersecurity background that has an interest in it, that has some knowledge in it, and that can actually speak to it. Personally, I think absolutely. Um, boards, like all of us, are on a journey, you know, in terms of awareness of cybersecurity and the challenges associated with it. So I think initially, especially after the Sony breach, if you remember that, um, boards couldn't stop buzzing about cybersecurity. That really kicked it off. Uh, I think there was an initial knee-jerk reaction that said, hey, we need to add cyber experts to the board. Um, and some did, uh, absolutely. But I think a couple of years later, there was a little bit of, well, I'm not so sure. Um, maybe a little bit of buyer's remorse. They, they, they did a knee-jerk reaction. They added someone to the board. Maybe they added the wrong person. Uh, they realized that they were very niche, maybe too delivery-oriented and not high-level business-oriented or risk-oriented. Um, and so there was a backlash after an initial investment at the board level, I think, that said, hey, we can rent, not buy this expertise. Uh, but I'm in here we are in 2018, almost 2019, um, I see that changing again. I, I think companies are going to revisit adding a cyber expert to the board and should um, because this is here to stay. It's complicated, complex problem. Uh, you need an expert. And I've seen some companies make the mistake of saying, well, this person is a, is a techie or, or something else, and they have a bit of cyber. So we like that balance. We're going to bring them onto the board. You know, my own view is if you're going to add a cyber expert, add a cyber expert. Don't compromise. Get the best you can get. Right. And that's a, and then we get back to the talent problem again. I mean, how many board level qualified people do we know that are cybersecurity experts? And, you know, if you just look at the Fortune 500, I mean, can we possibly, is it even possible to, f to fill one board seat on all these, uh, all these companies with a, with a cybersecurity expert? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. Hard to do, <laughs> you know, someone, someone who could bring that uh, level of expertise and also, sort of hang at the board, right? Hang at the board and be able to talk about all the other issues uh, that companies talk to at the board level. So, um, you know, and then also be a fit with the board. That matters a lot. So um, really hard to do, but absolutely worth the investment of time and energy and money in, in that process. Yeah, and I don't even know if some of these cybersecurity experts at these, especially at the major financial institutions, if they're even allowed to serve on boards of these other companies. Um, there's a whole process that goes through that. I, I mean, I don't, I don't even know if it's the, the, the talent that exists. 
I think is very limited in what they could do. Um, are companies still using this, this CISO as a scapegoat here? I mean, I mean, I just see that, you know, something goes wrong and all of a sudden you got, even, even cybersecurity experts, to my chagrin, are out of conferences and they're just pounding on the CISO or the, or the latest organization that got hacked. And I think that's just, that's just you know, I, I don't know. My personal opinion, it's terrible. What, what do you think about it? I agree. Uh, we need to get away from a fall person, right? Fall guy, fall person. Um, it, 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 this is a group effort, right? And I, you've seen some of the best companies, I think, handle it really well. Um, I'll point to a group like Sony, right? Who went through arguably one of the worst experiences with the cyber breach a company could go through. Um, instead of throwing their CISO under the bus, um, they uh, said, you know, mea culpa, all of us are uh, culpable here. Um, let's just invest the time and energy to do it right. See how that executive handles this transition period. Did great. In fact, promoted him and gave him a raise through the process. Um, he is now the uh, global CISO at Dell doing a great job, John Shimoni. Um, and I, I think that's the, the right way to approach it. If, if a company has a breach, um, it's everybody's issue, right? It's, did we, did we as a company support this person enough to invest properly? Did we as an organization, you know, do everything that that person laid out in the, in their strategy and their plan, uh, to help them be successful? Of course, a top CISO needs to be a great influencer and move an organization, but they can only move a big organization so fast. I had a recent CISO that I placed in the last two years, took a very big job. And before they signed on, they said, look, I did my analysis of what's going on here. It's going to take me two or three years to get you to best practices and where you need to be. Um, it's going to take me a while. If a major breach happens in the next two to three years, I'm not the fall guy. You know, let's get that straight. And I'm not taking this job until you look me in the eye and say, I got your back while we get this company to where it needs to be. So I don't see a lot of CISOs going on to like COO jobs or CAO jobs or well, CRO jobs. Um, I see them going from CISO job to CISO job. And I also see them, quite frankly, to follow up on what we just talked about, they're, they're just there to be the scapegoat in case something happens. You know, the board or the executive committees can point the finger and then hold them accountable. When people don't realize having the CISO there as part of the response, as part of the whole ecosystem, it's not just the prevention piece up front. And a lot of times these CISOs aren't even responsible for these breaches. Um, you know, something that, you know, we have a lot of matrixed uh, environments and a lot of different organizations. There's a lot of executives that are responsible for their own uh, te uh, technical uh, cybersecurity posture, defense and death posture in their, in their lines of business, in their sectors. And uh, a lot of times it's not even the CISO's fault, but forget the, the, the pointing the finger and the name blaming and everything. If you look at the CISO position in general and the scrutiny and the, and the, and the, you know, and the, the pressure that these people are under and then the job opportunities that get presented to them afterwards, just to go to another pressure cooker someplace else, is, is the CISO position a dead end job at this point? It's a great question. The, um, it, it, it can feel that way, right? It, you know, when yeah. you're such a deep expert as a CISO um, and you go from one, you're like, well, if I get to that top job, CISO, then what, what's my um, next step? It's another CISO job, right? Um, and to your point, it's, it's a pressure cooker. It's a high pressure job. I say all the time, you know, even look at a big breach like Equifax. Um, that person, um, what the CISO there was considered a perfectly good CISO for four years, but four years and X number of days, that person became the scapegoat for the entire industry. Um, and how fair is that? Not terribly fair. So, right. you know, it's, you look at uh, these jobs, I see uh, some CISOs becoming sort of CIO, CISO, if they're particularly technical. Um, I see some CISOs becoming, uh, moving down the CRO path, chief risk officer path. But for the most part, it's more the same. If you were a CISO, you're going to be a CISO again. Um, and you keep doing that. 
unfortunately, it's a burnout job too. So you're seeing lots of CISOs. I mean, look at look at uh, Alex uh, uh, Stamos at uh, Facebook. You know, he uh, stepped away, and now um, good on him. Uh, he's building the Stanford University Cyber Center, so he's going to put his great uh, experience to work uh, helping Stanford build their uh, program out, and um, which is an admirable thing to do. Uh, but there's another executive out of the market, right? And I talk to lots of CISOs right now who are faced with Mission Impossible wherever they are right now, and they've been a CISO, would absolutely be a candidate for me uh, to place them again in another Fortune 500 uh, type company, but they're coming to me and many of them are saying, I've had it, you know, I'm done. Yeah. I, you know, I don't want another CISO job. How long, how long does the average CISO last? Like, uh, is it, what is it, like three to five years or something, you think? It, it used to be three to five years. I honestly am seeing more and more two to three years. Uh, again, wow. I, you know, you, the, demand, the demand is there, right? Uh-huh. Um, and for cer- certain CISOs are like, they don't want to move, right? They're, I mean, a lot of the, the candidates I know are, again, mission-driven, loyal people. They're like, look, I'm happy to stay if I'm in a good situation and build out a program. I'm happy to stay here for a while. Um, but the demand in the market is so great. Uh, there's lots of them who say, hey, I'm a builder. I come in. If you are uh, in a bad, a bad shape, I'll get you to a, a great strategy and roadmap. I'll build you a three to five year strategy, but I won't be around to finish it. You know, but I will, um, I will set you up with succession planning. So I'll come in, get you started, maybe stay for two, two and a half years, and then I'm going to move because there's another company out there in equally a bad shape and they need me to go build them a program. And frankly, the, the rewards are so great for me to do that. How could I not? This is a great conversation. We got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, folks, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from the managing partner of Coldwell Partners, Matt Comins, after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Voice America. 
You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, one of the most sought-after cybersecurity executive recruiters in the world and the managing partner of Caldwell Partners, Matt Kalman. So, Matt, I want to pick up where we left off on the previous segment. We talked a little bit about what companies are looking for in a cybersecurity executive, but now I want to talk about how information security executives can differentiate themselves. That's what people want to know. I mean, you got a lot of, a lot of people that walk into a room, you got maybe five candidates, very senior folks, they have very similar backgrounds. A lot of them do have risk and business mixed in. I mean, how can you how can you differentiate yourselves in the crowd of you know, very talented people? It is hard to do, right? So, it, you know, clearly your experience will speak for itself. So if you have, you know, for example, been through a breach or you have built multiple programs before and they need to build the programs like you may hit on all the hot buttons for that particular client you know but otherwise i would say you know as we all know cybersecurity is a moving target new things are coming down all the time from new technology new regulations um think about gdpr is a great example so the latest explosion, as, as we know, again, from Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica debacle, um, is privacy uh, and the new regulations coming out of the UK. Um, I would look sometimes at trends like that and say, you know what, I'm going to deep dive on privacy over the next 12 to 18 months. Maybe I get a certification, maybe I do something like that, but all things being equal, I want an extra, you know, bullet that I can differentiate myself on my resume and say, yes, I'm a cybersecurity expert. Yes, I've built a program before. I understand how to do this. And oh, by the way, I understand some of the new areas like privacy more deeply and better than my colleagues or peers. That's a really good point. I mean, I see that as that. I see companies would probably really appreciate that kind of background, especially so quick. Um, and this is really recent, like you said, and not a lot of people probably have that experience. And if you can position yourselves in your job right now to get that experience and then highlight it and, you know, on your resume, then I think that could be a differentiator. That's a really good point. How much, how much time should executives spend searching for a job externally versus internally? And then how much time should they really spend constantly looking for new opportunities, even when they have a good one? Yeah, great, great question. Um, I would say if you're in a good situation, you know, you're with a good company, you like it, it's challenging. Uh, I guess the short answer is when you no longer feel challenged in your job, it's time to look around. Um, But if you're in a good situation, it's growing, you're growing, they're rotating you maybe into different areas of expertise or putting more underneath you. Uh, you feel like you're being fairly well compensated. Uh, there's no reason to really leave. Uh, it's when you sort of feel like your work is done or you're getting bored, uh, it may be time to move. Um, it is hard. Uh, I, I, I just saw a situation. Uh, I hired someone, knock on wood, uh, for uh, a vice president of technology risk and compliance underneath the CISO, actually, because some of the direct reports are getting big enough compensation-wise where I start to do that work too. And um, I watched that person uh, go from making roughly 250000 to over 400000 okay? Um, and those are the types of opportunities that are available to executives in this space. Uh, that person had been with the company six or seven years even if the company was good to that person, even if the company promoted them, gave them raises, there's only so much a company in an HR group can do without breaking the system. So if you've been loyal and you're a top information security executive and you've been at your company for six or seven years, by definition, you're 
very likely to be under market. And at some point, you owe it to yourself to test the market. You know, that's pretty interesting. I mean, what do you see as the, and if you even have this number, I mean, I don't know if you, if you know this number off the top of your head, but what, what do you see as the, the increasing compensation? What percentage uh, would you see when people make the jump from in the executive world? You know, you're, we're talking to managing director and above, right? I mean, I know that the average, yep. I think some people, even for an analyst job, people are getting, you know, the average is 20%. I think, and right now I see people getting a lot more than that. But I mean, in the executive space, are you seeing like 30, 40, 50% increases or in pay? It's all over the map. When you, when you have a market like this that is so relatively new, um, so active, and, and companies are repricing it all the time, um, I hear all the time, and by the way, this is, I sympathize across the board. I sympathize with my clients who are trying to make sense of this and pulling their hair out when they're told they have to pay 100, 150% increase over what they were thinking. Uh, I sympathize with the candidates who are saying, gosh, you know, I'm mission driven. I'm as loyal as the next person, but I, I you know, you can't blame me for wanting fair market value, but what am, what's my value? Um, and, and, and it's rough for us because, it, you know, if I say, oh, you're going to need to pay so much more money, I risk <laughs> ticking off my client base or, you know, or being perceived as, you know, juicing the market, so to speak. So, uh, but the reality is, um, it, 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 it depends on the situation. It depends on the company. Uh, I'll give you one that nearly drove me to drink, which was, uh, I had a, an executive at a bank making a good amount of money. Um, and that person, I, I got a uh, 55% increase in their compensation off of an already pretty high um, all-in comp package. Uh, I thought that was going to do the trick. We came in strong. We hit it hard. Um, and the comp- his company counteroffered with a 100% increase. So... <laughs> Why was that? Why was that person worth X on Monday and two X on Tuesday, right? The very next day, and a lot of companies don't know what it's worth until it's walking out the door, literally. Yeah. And 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 it shouldn't come to that. We shouldn't have to play chicken, right, with our employers and you know the situation. But that's what kind of market we're in. Like, what is the right value? We, you know. Um, I will tell you the biggest packages I've seen are no surprise on the West Coast. Um, besides some of the top global banks, which are now pushing at the high end over $3 million all-in compensation, um, I have seen, uh, I saw one situation with a top internet company. Now, mind you, they get paid in like 90% equity, which may or may not be, uh, you know, dollar for dollar uh, valuable. but uh, I saw a situation where it was a four-year deal of close to $20 million, okay? Uh, so you had somebody getting paid four and a half to $5 million a year uh, in, 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 in one particular situation in, in California. So um, it's, it's a crazy market, you know, and companies, uh, you know, shows you how important it is to companies. I think some of these companies, they, you know, they have somebody that's working there for a long time and they just keep sort of, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say taking advantage of them, but it, it, it really is like they don't understand that person's value in the market and they just keep them in these, you know, one and a half or two and a half percent raises over the years. And as long as that person sits there and takes it, I feel like the company thinks they have leverage over that person and the HR departments work on leverage. And until they have, until the, it's, until the executive has the leverage where they have, you know, a letter, they come in and they talk to the, the HR department and they say, hey, look, I got a 50% increase in opportunity here. And this is just one of them. You know, I mean, I'm sure there was more for that person. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if that's what they were getting for one company, I'm sure they could probably have had a dozen letters in there. And so now the, the, the company's faced with, well, now they're going to have to go out and find and replace that talent. They're going to have to pay for that talent anyway. They're not going to get that talent at the price that that person's leaving. They're going to have to pay probably much more to get that talent, at least the same talent that they had. Uh, in there. And it's very, very difficult. And that's when they say, okay, maybe we should recalculate what we're thinking about here. And it's a shame that it has to get like that. It's a shame it has to get to that point. But I still feel, even if you explain that to them, 
they're still going to say, hey, look, we're going to keep it down. You know, it's their job. HR is to keep the, the you know, one of their jobs, the, the, you know, keep the jobs uh, or the pay low so that uh, they're not overpaying for talent. I mean, you don't want to go, the, the company doesn't need to go broke either, right? Imagine, you yeah. know, if they weren't doing their jobs, right? So, um, well, how, do, how do executives create more opportunities for themselves? I mean, how do they go out there and actually make, just create things happening, make things happen? Well, I would say, uh, first thing is do a good job. You know, if you, if you do a great job in this market and you get known to be a very valuable, you know, part of an information security program or you ran a great program, uh, your reputation is going to follow you. Right. So you're going to create lots of opportunities for yourself because a lot of what I do, uh, as many folks as I know in the market, um, I still source. I still go to the thought leaders and say, who's good? Who do you like? Who's available? Who's thinking about a move? Um, But to create more opportunity for yourself right now, I would say one of the number one things you can do is uh, be open to relocation. Okay. Um, If you're in the New York area, Uh, but are willing to move to St. Louis or Atlanta or Chicago or, you know, uh, Denver, Colorado, um, Dallas, Texas. I get requests all over the place. Most of the work I do is in the U.S., but I even do work globally. I'm about to start something in London. I just got a call from someone in Sydney, Australia. I placed uh, six months ago, I placed someone in Athens, Greece. Um, this is a global problem, right? The United States is the most developed market. And oftentimes when uh, overseas companies look for leadership, they'll, they'll put at least 50% of the candidate pool. They want to take a look at uh, American talent. You know, that's pretty interesting. I mean, you know, I'm a New York guy. I don't know too many New York guys that don't want to be New York guys. <laughs> Like, you know, it's I mean, hard. you get that call. Life, that wants, life you know, gets in the way. Well, that's the thing. You know, I mean, you know, you know, we got a job out here in Pittsburgh. I'm like, Pittsburgh? <laughs> like, I've been to Pittsburgh. Like, Pittsburgh's a great city. I love Pittsburgh. But I don't know. I don't want to live there. Um, you know, uh, and so it, it becomes, I think you're, you're right. I mean, if you get somebody that's willing to move and move around, I mean, uh, I think things would, would open up, you know, dramatically. How do these, what's the best thing that executives need to do to work with recruiters? Well, so much of uh, interviewing well, right, is, um, well, first of all, is, is being prepared and, and understanding what the clients are really looking for. And, you know, recruiters are great at that. We spend our time not just talking to the candidates every day, but we talk to clients constantly across industries, across, across geographies, and they say, here's our situation, X, Y, Z, can you help us? So um, if you should, as a candidate, you should have a relationship with maybe five to seven recruiters uh, who you know are going to get the best jobs and the best opportunities in the market. They're also going to be really career coaches for you because they're going to say, gosh, you know, George, you, you were a great candidate. It didn't work out this time. Let me tell you what would have been better. You know, had you done, you know, this and that, you might have gotten the nod. Um, or uh, you, they get to know you better. So when they introduce you to uh, a situation, they're like, I know George. I've known George now for three years. He is perfect. Trust me on this. And they can more confidently present you to the client knowing that you're the best fit for that situation. So you see a lot of different uh, structures, I'm sure, out there. We talk about organizational structures here and what, what, you know, what is the best structure? What is the optimal structure? And when you talk about your information security group, is it reporting to the CRO? Is it reporting to you know, the CTO, the CIO? What do you think? What's the best practice for reporting structures or is there one? The short answer is, I don't think there is one. I tell my clients all the, all the time, I don't care how you structure this as long as it works. If it works and, and you're nimble, uh, you've got lots of support for the CISO, um, you, you're, you're avoiding breaches. If it's working, then whatever structure works, works. Um, the, 
I do. I will say the vast majority of uh, situations I see reporting to the CIO. Um, probably second is the general counsel. That that tends to be more popular these days. Uh, and some of them feel like, hey, if it's under the CIO, it's a conflict of interest. I want it arm's length. I want to put it under the GC. Or if they have a chief risk officer, they'll want to put it there. Certain industries like financial services are more comfortable putting it there. Uh, I think regulations are going to push it in that direction in certain circumstances. I've also seen it report to the CFO. Um, I've rarely seen it report to the CEO. We've, we've seen buzz in the market and headlines about that. But honestly, I've only worked on a handful of situations where the CISO reported to the C CEO, and it was when they were in deep trouble. Uh, they had a major uh, breach or violation, and the company you know, had to prove to regulators that, no, we mean business. We mean so much business that it's going to report directly to the CEO. Now, it takes a certain CISO to be able to report to a CEO who is, you know, understandably distracted with many other things in their day job. So it's got to be a pretty self-assured, confident, you know, CISO to handle that kind of reporting structure. Otherwise, you want, you know, someone who you're going to report to is going to support you and help bring more muscle to getting your agenda across. So you would think that this uh, would be an easy question in terms of, you know, I'm going to ask you how, how important it is to be current on new technologies. And you would say to yourself, well, of course, I mean, it's important to be, you know, update on new technologies, but how really important is it? I mean, how, and how up to date do you have to be? Great question, because you don't want to chase the new shiny object, but you don't want to have your head in the sand and not right. take care of, uh, you know, wonderful, wonderful new technologies that are out there trying to solve the problem. So like the explosion in demand for talent um, and budgets growing, uh, you know, it didn't take the venture uh, capital community or entrepreneurs much time to figure that one out. Um, but the latest number I heard was in the last five years, there have been over 3,000 you know, cybersecurity technology companies funded. Um, so uh, that's a problem. That's, that's chaos. It's confusion. Unfortunately, they all try to work their way through the CISO or decision makers to buy that technology. So they're clogging up your inbox and, and calling you constantly uh, to get an audience. Um, so you got to be careful or you'll be distracted. At the same time, there are absolutely positively some wonderful new technologies that are being created that are going to make this problem a lot better. Um, so you've got to be in the loop. And those vendor relationships make you a better executive, too. So you, you've got to walk the line there and find the right balance because that new technology may be worth implementing. And they're also talking to a lot of the market, and they're going to share a lot of information with you along the way. So they're going to make you better and smarter. So I've been asking a lot of questions for executives out there because I know a lot of people are listening and they're trying to figure out how to manage their careers. And I want to ask you one question for the companies and I want to leave them out. What are the best recruiting and retention practices that companies should be employing? Another great question. Uh, you know, if you're managing a team of at least 20, 30, maybe 50. In some cases, obviously at the big banks, you're into the thousands. Um, it has never been more important uh, and a key to your success than having a great team and recruiting and retaining that talent. Um, and if you have the right leader and you're known as one of those leaders, um, People won't just chase the money, right? They know if they're thinking longer term, especially the more junior people in the industry, if they're thinking longer term, they will delay gratification on the compensation side if they feel like they're being properly invested in their career. Um, I'm going to, you know, city or wherever it is because they run a great program. They've got a great leader. They rotate me around. Uh, I can go back for further education. Uh, I know if I spend three, five, you know, however many years there, my value is going to double, triple on my next move. So, um, you know, 
recruiting and retention strategies and getting creative uh, to build a really great program. And then understanding, hey, there's a lot of demand in the market. I don't want a lot of turnover, but I don't mind training up a great executive who's going to go out in the world and make it better. Uh, and they're going to be part of the, in this case, city alum or whatever it may be. Um, you know, that's okay. Uh, so look, Matt, I know you're a super busy guy. Thanks for coming on the show with us. I know we've been trying to squeeze this in for a while now. I really appreciate you coming on. Absolutely, George. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. All right, folks, we've run out of time. Once again, before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 